Good morning. When Jesus rode in Jerusalem in what we now call Palm Sunday, he, he pushed the start button that put into motion all the dramatic events that we remember during Holy Week. His last confrontations with religious power brokers, his final public preaching to the fickle crowds, his most personal, private words for his most devoted friends, his deepest heartfelt prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest and trial, torture, crucifixion and death, and ultimately the triumph of Resurrection Sunday. So let's begin by reading the Palm Sunday story as recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting with verse 12. Let's hear God's word together. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Well, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word and many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And also let me read one verse from our continuing study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God, for this is his holy word. Down. That's generally not a popular word. If you're feeling down, it means you're sad or depressed. If you're down and out, it means you've spent your last penny and you've got no real prospects for a rebound. Down. It's a word to be avoided, especially in reference to the value of a stock portfolio or your retirement funds. Thumbs down means you've been rejected, you've been spurned, you've been abandoned. In his book, Descending into Greatness, Bill Hybels writes that down is a word reserved for losers, for the weak, for the poor, or those who are headed in that direction. We don't like down. But up, up, that's a great word. In our high-voltage society, up is a word we almost worship. Up is for winners, for heroes, for people on track, for for bigger and greater things. Upscale, upward mobile. Up just exudes a sense of well-being. If you're up, it means you've got energy and vitality and health and happiness. Moving up means you're rising against the odds. You're you're soaring above the crowd. You ascend to greater things, greater security, greater fortune, greater comfort, greater happiness. Up is definitely the direction to go. From the perspective of our culture, up is the only way to go. And so we judge people on which direction they're headed. Hollywood stars and business, uh, professional athletes, business moguls, politicians, their careers are either going up or down, rising or falling, and people keep a careful watch. Closer to home, how often have you secretly rejoiced over seeing some downturn, some misfortune, come into a person's life because you resented their uppityness? The pushy person at work, the, the bragger at school, the one in your circle of relationships who's always seemed to have it so easy. Well, they finally get what they deserved. Not so up 
anymore. There's a lot of resentment out there for people who are more up than we are. There seems to be almost a a built-in mechanism in the human heart that points us up. Something within that craves attention and and self-promotion. You can call it ego, call it pride, call it insecurity. There's something in us that thinks that that we should be at the front of the line. That, That we're the ones who deserve the special treatment. Or we deeply resent those who do, who've made it, who have what we secretly desire and may never attain. The ones with the perfect marriage, the perfect children, the perfect house, the perfect job, the perfect life. Something in us that says, that's the direction I should be heading, even if we don't think we're making much progress. And that's what makes Jesus such an enigma. His whole life went in the opposite direction. The message Jesus taught, the message Jesus lived, was that true greatness comes to those whose direction in life is down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That just doesn't sound right to our American ear. But that's how God operates. It's a, it's a paradox. You do the opposite. You descend into greatness. You gain by giving away. You lead by serving. In God's eyes, greatness comes not through self-promotion, but through self-surrender. The disciple Peter tried to talk Jesus out of going to Jerusalem and riding into town in the impromptu parade that we just read about. Peter knew that Jerusalem was a dangerous place, and riding into town like that was like poking a hornet's nest with a stick. Jesus was just asking for trouble. But Jesus publicly rebuked Peter and said to all his followers, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul? It's Matthew 16, 25. That's downward mobility. And so it's pretty easy to understand why people were often so opposed to Jesus, why people didn't buy into his approach to life, give up power, Let go of ego, serve rather than be served. Those are all steps down, and and friends, that's the wrong direction. And it's also easy to understand why throughout history, many people who call themselves Christian have not really come to grips with the true calling Jesus has placed on their lives. It's easy to substitute for faith our own own wish list of self-indulgence, So that faith becomes about all these things that we want God to do for us, a lifestyle that we want God to give us, a lifestyle we want God to bless. We've heard so much about how much God loves us, how amazing His grace is, that we actually begin to think we deserve it, that we're owed, that we get forgiveness and a second chance and a third chance and as many chances as we want, no problem. Everybody loves that idea of grace. But only if grace means God is always going to be there waiting patiently to forgive us and help us again and again and again and always give us what we want, no questions asked. God is sort of like a puppy that just wags its tail uncontrollably every time we walk into the room. Of course he loves us. Of course he gives us grace. That's his job. Sacrifice, obedience, repentance. Somehow those words get left out of the faith conversation. They don't make it into the popular vocabulary of grace 
and faith. Too negative. Besides, we don't want to turn people off. Is that really the kind of grace Jesus talked about? Is that really the kind of life he lived? Is that really the kind of life that he wants for his followers? I don't think so. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that approach to life and faith cheap grace. Cheap grace. Bonhoeffer, as you may know, was a local pastor in Germany in the late 1930s when Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime had taken over the government with a lot of support from within the state-run Lutheran church. Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler, and eventually he paid for it with his life. He was, he was hanged as a traitor. But what he said about the church and about Christians, unfortunately, still rings very true today. He made a distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. He wrote, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer said that in too many instances, the gospel is, is kind of preached this way. Of course you've sinned, but now everything's forgiven. So you can just stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. Bonhoeffer said, that's not grace. Not in the sense that Jesus taught it. Jesus taught a costly grace. Costly grace. He writes, this costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels uh, us to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. The price we're having to pay in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at too low a cost. We gave away the word and the sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved the whole nation without condition. Our humanitarian sentiment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and unbelieving, but the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. That's from the cost of discipleship. The call to follow Jesus in the narrow way. Costly grace involves surrender. And that was the way Jesus lived. I read from the Gospel of John at the beginning of today's message. To me, it's the most fascinating book of the Bible because it's different from the other Gospels. John wasn't writing a chronological history of the life of Jesus. That had already been done by the time he put pen to paper around 90 A.D., John didn't need to repeat what was already in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so John writes a theological story about the life of Christ. He doesn't care about dates or timing. He tells things out of order. He mixes things up. He doesn't even tell the historical Christmas story. No shepherds or manger, not even Mary and Joseph. No, he goes for the meaning. This is how he starts his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. And then dropping down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What he is describing is what we call the Incarnation. How God became human, flesh and blood in Jesus. 
You see, Jesus took a big step down. The creator, the eternal one who existed for all time in a way that we can't possibly comprehend or even imagine. He stooped to love. The one God whom we know as Father, Son, and Spirit existed that way for all time. One God, yet three persons, each distinct but inseparable. And yet the Son leaves the highest of heaven, wraps himself in human skin, enters the world he created as a fetus in Mary's womb. Born without fanfare, stripped of his privileges, his power, his prestige, he descended. He voluntarily stepped down, sacrificed his divine prerogatives. The one worthy of all worship was was born as a helpless baby in an animal stable. No kingly palace, no entourage of attendants. And once his earthly life began, Jesus never stopped descending. The omnipotent one had no power. The owner of all things had no home. The king of kings acts as a servant, touching the sores of of lepers. The source of all truth was accused of, of blasphemy. And so it's fitting that he rides into Jerusalem, not on the back of a white stallion, escorted by chariots and legions of soldiers, no, but on the back of a farm animal. No ticker tape parade for him, only palm branches pulled from nearby trees. Down. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus' downward mobility this way. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself nothing. That that implies a willful action. Jesus deliberately stripped himself of everything. He crossed that unthinkable chasm between God and humanity. Try to imagine the span of that chasm. How how could we possibly measure the distance from from heaven to earth? I mean, it's beyond us. It's, It's outside what we know in our physical universe. The distance between heaven and earth, it's not something you could measure even with the speed of light. Let an Einstein try to do it with a supercomputer. Try to run that equation and the computer chips would simply melt. And that dimensional distance isn't the most important descent to be measured. There is the descent of essence. The unlimited God becoming a limited man. Before the step down into our world, Jesus the Son stood at the center of the universe. He was the focal point of all praise, the creator of all things. By his very nature, his energy and power, he held everything together. But he chose to descend, chose to become truly human, fully human for us. Heaven to earth, God to man, that still doesn't measure the full descent of Christ. There was one more downward step, the hardest step of all, from sinless to sin-stained. The perfect one, the holy one, the sinless one, taking on, bearing our sin and the punishment it deserves on the cross. Jesus rode into Jerusalem knowing that the cross was coming and he chose it. He embraced it. Why? Out of love. Though equal in every way, he voluntarily submitted to the Father. It was because of the perfect love with the Father and of the Son that Jesus could so willingly step down. It was because of his perfect trust 
with the Father and the Spirit that he could let go of power and position. The whole purpose of his life on earth was to please the Father. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He sought only to please the Father in everything. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that the hour of his arrest had come, when he could have backed out, when he could have chosen some other path, no, he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus said, I surrender. I surrender my all, my whole self to the will of the Father. I surrender even my life to the cross because I know this is the Father's plan to provide forgiveness and salvation and grace for those who will receive it. And so on the cross, Jesus' soul was, was flooded with all the evil of the world. The hate of every lie, the venom of every cruel word, the, the poison of every impure thought, the tragedy of every act of violence and injustice, all the pain from how we hurt ourselves and hurt others and are hurt by others, all the brokenness that comes from all the ways that we've rejected God. And the Father in His holiness turns away from the Son. Jesus was plunged into the ocean of God's wrath and He did it out of love for us. I said last week that grace is this meeting point between truth and love. It is the meeting point between God's holiness and God's mercy and that intersection forms a cross and Jesus is on it. The type of death that even the lowest criminals despised. Hang me, chop off my head, put an arrow in my heart, but don't put me on a cross. Jesus could go no lower. He made himself nothing, humbled himself to the cross. Step by deliberate step, Jesus chose this. He chose one direction and it was down. He surrendered to the will of the Father for your sake and mine. And he accomplished the purpose for which the Father had sent him. There was one more reason for Jesus' movement down. To model for us who follow him what it means to demonstrate the love of God. On Thursday evening, we'll remember Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he was arrested and crucified. In John 13, we're told that right in the middle of that meal, Jesus did something extraordinary. Because they, had, they were meeting in secret, they hadn't taken the usual preparations for the Jewish Passover celebration. There were no servants to wash the dirty feet of guests as they came into the home from the dusty streets of Jerusalem. That was the normal, proper thing to do. Hadn't been done. And so Jesus took on that role. He grabbed a bowl of water and a towel. He stripped off his outer cloak. And one by one, he knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples. Even the feet of Judas whom he knew would betray him. And the disciples were, were beyond astonished. Their mouths hung open, speechless, you know, except for Peter, who, of course, never had an unexpressed thought. But to see their master doing the job of the lowliest servant, I mean, Jesus never ceased to amaze. And when he is finished, Jesus said this, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, and now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, no messenger greater 
than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you live like Jesus. You will be blessed if you take a step down, if you surrender your will to the greater will of God the Father, if you serve others the way Christ intended. That's why Paul could say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit like Jesus did. That's the key to making your relationships work. Be like Jesus. Just as Jesus made himself downwardly mobile and gave himself away for the benefit of others, we're expected to do the same in our relationships. The values of this word are all about feeding your self-indulgence. But God knows that self-indulgence by its very nature leads leads to soul destruction, to inner self-destruction. What's inside of you and me needs to surrender to God and live a life of surrender as Jesus did. God says, if you want to follow me, follow the example of my son who lost not just a little, but lost everything. And this is the hard call to discipleship, the same claim Jesus made on his disciples. It's not a call to a sour life devoid of fun or energy or great dreams. Jesus actually promises a more fulfilling life, a life blessed, life to its fullest. It's what Jesus wants for you, to live life to the full, but a different kind of life where we descend, where we surrender, yielding our desires and passions to his guidance, where we invite him to to begin to chip away at the rough edges of our personalities, where we use our gifts to serve him and serve others in a needy word without seeking applause or seeking recognition or seeking even affirmation. Down means losing your selfish ambition by letting God honor you in his way for loving others. It means losing your addiction to things, trusting that he will provide for all your needs. It means losing your obsession to be in control, knowing that Christ will give you the inner freedom that you really seek. Jesus' invitation is and always has been, follow me down. Lose your life in me because I will give you a better one. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are an enigma to us. An enigma, how do we put together your view of the world with this overwhelmingly materialistic, complicated world that we live in every day? It is a struggle, Lord. Help us to see the direction we need to go is down and to follow you into obedience with the Father, follow you into service to others, follow you so that we're surrendering our ego, ourselves, everything we are to your greater good. Lord, we thank you for your example in Christ's name.